Beloveds, welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, and in liberation? We are building up a new world. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the Freedom Movement is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap, back with you again today. I'm a United Church of Christ pastor in the place currently called Buffalo, New York, here in the homelands of the Haudenosaunee and Erie peoples. I'm the faith coordinator for Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE, nationally, and this podcast is a project of SURGE Faith and SURGE Action, and is particularly designed for white people, white people talking to other white people about race and white supremacy. We believe white people, like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, including in our own Christian tradition. We'd love to hear from you, and especially from folks of color, about how we're doing. The word is resistance. Friends, it's good to be back with you. It feels like an age since my last podcast, even though it was like only a month or so ago. In my last podcast, I talked a lot about despair, about the importance of recognizing and feeling our own despair and learning from it, which meant I spent a lot of time, as I worked on that episode, immersed in despair, the despair of Ecclesiastes and my own. I posted that episode on SoundCloud, and just a few days later, still kind of in a despair hangover, we went on vacation. I know, not exactly the mood for a vacation. But at any rate, we went to Santa Fe, New Mexico, where we used to live nearly 25 years ago, and where I spent a lot of my time in my 20s before we lived there. A piece of our hearts lives in the land there. We've been back a few times since we moved away and love visiting the places that mean a lot to us, like our favorite restaurants, the plaza, and the generous, vibrating landscape. This visit, we decided to go somewhere new, to the Museum of Contemporary Native Art, run by the Institute of American Indian Art. Somehow we had never managed to go, and we were particularly interested after we walked by the first night and saw lush corn growing taller than the walls, stalks dancing with squash and bean vines, with a sign in the bed that read, Healing is Resistance. That night, I checked the museum hours online and discovered that they have an an exhibit called Reconciliation, which caught my eye. You see, many years ago, those same years that I was spending so much time in Santa Fe, I was first a participant and then the coordinator of a program called Reconciliation and Mission, a partnership between the Presbyterian Church USA and churches and ecumenical organizations in Central America. The program was an attempt to do mission 
in a different way, one that centered justice and mutuality rather than U.S. domination and colonization that had led to the disastrous civil wars and government repression throughout the region. It was the 1990s, when the wars were just coming to an end, and we weren't sure yet what was possible, but all we knew, but we all knew, we could not keep doing things the same old way. We reflected deeply on reconciliation and what could possi- what that could possibly mean in the context of so much violence and the utter impunity of governments and their repressive forces. We held those conversations together in cross-national groups of volunteers before the U.S. folks would go to their placements in Central America and the Central American folks to their U.S. churches. And we kept those conversations going through the monthly reflections and on the multinational planning team all through the year. Every year but one that I was involved, we had our six-week orientation for the volunteers in Santa Fe, just a few blocks from the Central Plaza. Part of my job was to facilitate conversations about reconciliation in the context of deep histories of violence and colonization, which is inescapable in northern New Mexico. Actually, it's inescapable everywhere once we realize it. And so I spent a lot of time immersed in the history of Santa Fe in northern New Mexico and was given uh, and was gifted with the opportunity to learn from Pueblo leaders their own experience of that history, their relationship to the land, the struggles they still faced. One of the things we witnessed each year was the Santa Fe fiestas, celebrating the supposed peaceful reconquest of the region by Spain in 1692, 12 years after the Pueblo revolt led by Pope of Oqueowinge that kicked the Spaniards out in 1680. Here's a hint. The reconquest was not peaceful. Peaceful doesn't bring cannons and war horses. For several hundred years, the fiesta was mostly just masses in honor of La Conquistadora. But in 1912, a white man decided, no really, a white man decided that it would be a great idea to have a reenactment of the not peaceful, peaceful reconquest. This was called La Entrada and depicted the Spanish colonizer Don Diego de Vargas and his troops being well received by Pueblo leaders as they entered Santa Fe. A declaration was read, and everyone shouted, Viva las fiestas, and... Yeah, exactly. The entrada was a lie. An excellent documentary about all of this history and more called Surviving Columbus taught me much about this history, and I used it with our groups during Fiesta Week. It's available to watch online at PBS for free, and I encourage you to do so. It's really good. So with my groups, um, Pueblo leaders, including the film's director, would meet with us and share with us how painful it was for them to experience the fiestas, and especially the entrada, year after year, how harmful it was to them and to their children, and how resistance to this celebration of their conquest had been ongoing even when they despaired of winning. What could reconciliation possibly mean in that context? What did reconciliation mean if those, to borrow a phrase from the Jeremiah reading for today, 
if those who were skilled in doing evil refused to change. So yes, I was curious about this exhibition called Reconciliation and what Native artists had to say about it. We walked into the museum and headed for the exhibit. On the wall outside the exhibit room was a large description written of the exhibit, the why. And there I learned, to my utter astonishment, that the Entrada had finally been discontinued in 2018. The Fiesta Council and the de Vargas Knights had finally agreed to end it. This exhibit, Reconciliation, was a response to that decision and an offering towards the possibility of reconciliation between Pueblo and Spanish-descended peoples. Remember what I said about Ecclesiastes in my last podcast? There is no beyond, no possibility of anything new, of any future with hope. There is only here and now, over and over. And yet, after generations of resistance, the entrada is over. Friends, I stood there and wept. come back to this exhibit and what happened next, but, you know, I want to spend a little time with our lectionary text, too. So, three of our texts for this week show God observing humanity and not liking at all what they see. I'm going to read some of these texts, and they may be a little hard to hear, so just be prepared for that. So Exodus 32 finds Moses having to talk God out of destroying the people in the wilderness for building the golden calf. So check out my podcast from two years ago for more thoughts on that story. Psalm 14 says God, quote, looks down from heaven on humankind to see if there are any who are wise who seek after God. They have all gone astray. They are all alike perverse. There is no one who does good, no not one. And then Jeremiah 4. Well, Jeremiah has God saying this. At that time, it will be said to this people and to Jerusalem, a hot wind comes from me from out of the bare heights in the desert towards my poor people, not to winnow or cleanse, a wind too strong for that. Now it is I who speak in judgment against them. For my people are foolish. They do not know me. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are skilled in doing evil, but do not know how to do good. I looked on the earth, and lo, it was waste and void, and to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and lo, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and lo, there was no one at all, and all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and lo, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, 
before his fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, The whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. Because of this the earth shall mourn, and the heavens grow black. For I have spoken, I have purposed, I have not relented, nor will I turn back. All of these texts, reflecting different time periods in the history of the people of Israel, are about God's judgment. And Jeremiah in particular describing the impact of God's judgment, what God is going to do about the people's evil. I want to take a moment here with this because so many of us may have been harmed by churches interpreting God's judgment as having to do with our bodies, our loves, our material lives, our ways of practicing spirituality, that we are right to be suspicious of texts like these, to hold them a bit at arm's length and say, that's not the God I believe in. My God doesn't judge. God is love. I want to be clear that this is a perfectly acceptable response to the harm done by the church. If this is you, and it is also me, and I would say it was also the spiritual leaders of the Pueblo people who were beaten by the Spanish for practicing their sacred ways, which was one of the last straws that led to the Pueblo revolt. Let's just hold that for a moment. If this is you, like it's me, like it's so many. Maybe just hold yourself or imagine holding yourself and thank yourself. Yes, thank yourself for being smart about how to protect yourself from harm. I want to hold that with care as I talk about these texts because I think it is a shame that these texts have been twisted to be put in service of colonization exploitation, misogyny, homophobia, Christian nationalism, and other kinds of violence that uphold white supremacy. They are twisted to uphold that structural violence, and they are twisted to mean judgment on our small, personal, individual, day-to-day choices and decisions. Did we drink or smoke or sleep with the wrong person or eat the wrong thing or curse or whatever? So I want us to hear... Excusing structural violence and judging individual choices are not what these texts are about at all. What they are actually about is holding political systems and those upholding them accountable for their injustice. And that injustice is almost always defined as violence and exploitation against the poor, the orphan, the widow, the migrant, the workers. The land. The judgment is upon, as Psalm 14 says, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread. Now, as white folks, we also get uncomfortable with this reading of these texts and how they might be convicting us, how we might be feeling judged for our complicity in violent systems. We don't like it, and so Often we, God is love, our way out of any responsibility to these texts. I myself have certainly used the, but God is love, line to deflect from my own discomfort with these texts and how they convict me. 
So as white folks, we need to be able to hold at least two things at once. That these texts have been twisted to harm, including sometimes against our very selves. And also, these texts have something important to say to us about structural violence and the consequences of it, and what we can do about it. So, now that this is all out on the blanket in front of us, let's go a little deeper with these texts. But first, let's breathe a little after all that and listen to a verse of the song. What strikes me most about the Jeremiah text is the impact that injustice has upon the land. Waste and void, a desolation, the whole earth shall mourn. Jeremiah is prophesying at the very end of the existence of Israel's small southern kingdom, Judah, as the empire Babylon squeezes its oppressive forces ever tighter. If you're wondering, the northern kingdom had been destroyed several generations earlier by the Assyrians. By the end of the book of Jeremiah, Babylon has crushed Judah, destroying Jerusalem and carrying Judah's political elite off into exile. So these are immensely intense times, and it would make sense that folks, including prophets, would be trying to make sense of what was happening to them. Jeremiah made meaning out of his times through one theological framework of his tradition, the framework of covenant, the covenant between God and God's people. This covenant said that God would protect and bless the people as long as the people walked in God's ways, which meant not just worshiping God, but also doing justice and loving kindness, to love and do right by the poor, the widow, the orphan, the migrant, the stranger, the worker, all of those things we keep talking about. This covenant meant God could hold the people accountable for straying from God's ways. And so it was understood by Jeremiah and others that oppression from neighboring empires was part of that judgment. We may not like that framework or agree with it, but not everyone else at the time did either. There are voices like Ecclesiastes and some Psalms and some other texts that push back on this. But regardless, that's the framework Jeremiah is operating from. At the same time, it's important to note that it's rarely, if ever, the case that God is judging the whole entire people. God judges the rich for mistreating the poor, the unjust for exploiting the just. God is judging those who have power within their political system, who make choices to strengthen their own power and wealth, or to save their own ass in the face of destruction, rather than choosing for the welfare of the whole community. Regardless of whether or not we agree with the framework of covenant Jeremiah is operating out of, I do hope we can agree that at its most basic level, what Jeremiah is trying to say is that there are consequences for exploitative, violent behavior, consequences for political systems that rely on exploitation and violence, 
and those consequences impact everyone and everything, including the land. Exploitation and violence impact the land. Everything I've set up to now is to get us here. What Jeremiah sees here in the fourth chapter is climate devastation. Hear it again. I looked on the earth, and lo, it was waste and void, and to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountains, and lo, they were quaking, and all the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and lo, there was no one at all, and all of the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and lo, the fruitful land was a desert, and all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. Because of this the earth shall mourn, and the heavens above grow black. As I read these words, I can't help but think about the hurricanes, the tornadoes, the wildfires, the floods, the extinctions. I can't help but think of New Orleans, Puerto Rico, the Bahamas. I can't help but think of Standing Rock. I can't help but think of the native Hawaiians protecting Mauna Kea. I can't help but think about how the powerful literally set the Amazon on fire to clear it for agribusiness. Climate devastation is one of the consequences of racialized capitalism and colonization that only sees land and her creatures as commodities, as something to be exploited. I looked, and lo, the fruitful land was a desert. All the birds of the air had fled. The earth shall mourn. can feel the grief and despair of that, of the climate devastation happening before our very eyes and the overwhelm that may cause. Honestly, it's been keeping me up at night. I don't know about you. What could reconciliation possibly mean in this context? So here's where I want to bring us back to that exhibit in Santa Fe. For surely, climate devastation was part of the impact of Spanish and later U.S. colonization in northern New Mexico. The loss of land for planting and hunting, loss of access to water, nuclear plants poisoning the soil, punishment for practicing sacred ways of connecting to land. Surviving Columbus has meant surviving climate disaster. For this exhibit, both Pueblo and Spanish-descended artists came together to offer possibilities towards a future world, a world, as their proclamation reads, in which all will thrive. The art pieces were made of simple things of the earth, 
ropes of yucca and wool, adobe bricks and frescoes, sunbursts of metal and corn husks, murals of seeds and beans and dandelions. And the garden where we saw the thriving three sisters, corn, beans, and squash, that was part of the exhibit as well. One interpretive placard described how both cultures historically and presently come together to bless seeds and soil and water. The placard describes how, and I'm quoting it, seed balls made with these combined elements are taken home to keep or bury with the hopes of staying rooted in an intergenerational spirit of respect, balance, and responsibility to all our relations. Our shared survival is entwined with our ability to care for our seeds, land, water, ecologies, and each other. Adapting and upholding our strengths as indigenous and land-based peoples of this place. Reconciliation, this exhibit was telling me, requires loving the land the seeds, the soil, the water, the rhythms, the creatures, and each other. Jeremiah's vision shows us what happens when we do not. The thing about the covenant framework is that God's judgment is never the end of the story. There is always the opportunity to turn back, which is the meaning of repent. Always the opportunity to change, to transform, Psalm 51, the other psalm for this week, begs the divine to wash their heart clean, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. And though I usually don't like Timothy, I would note that the person speaking out of Paul's mouth in this week's reading talks about his own transformation from a man of violence to one in service of the God of love. After generations of resistance, the entrada ended. Those who had caused harm turned, and new possibility can grow from that turning. I'm sure it won't be easy. As the exhibit says in several places, reconciliation is not a one-time event. Nevertheless, we can learn. There is always the opportunity to turn back, to return to the land, to love, Always the opportunity to find the path again when we've gone astray. Always the chance to seek until we find what has been lost. our call to action this week in the gospel reading from Luke that goes with all these other texts for today. Here, Jesus tells two similar parables that are pretty well known, the lost sheep and the lost coin. In both, someone has a lot of something, a hundred sheep, ten coins, but loses one. They search and search until they find what has been lost and then throw a big party. Traditionally, these parables are interpreted as the lost one being a sinner and heaven rejoicing when the lost one has been found. 
But I've been wondering, what if the sinner, quote-unquote, is the one who lost something important, something key to the wholeness of the community? After all, it's the shepherd's job to be sure that the sheep doesn't get lost in the first place. The rejoicing is over the finding. White supremacy has cost us as white folks something very important, something key to the wholeness of the community, and that is our relationship to the land. White supremacy and white Christianity have displaced us from our own ancestral traditions, our own sacred ways of being in community with the earth and her creatures. We have lost one of our sheep, one of our coins, one of our treasures that keeps us in balance and in right relationship. So the call to action for you is to seek out what was lost. Find regular practices of reconnecting with the earth. There are ways we can seek what we've lost without appropriating the sacred practices of other traditions. If you have a yard, talk to the plants there, even the ones you think are weeds. Bless your bulbs before you plant them this fall. Sing to your houseplants. Learn about the herbs that come from your ancestral lands and how your ancestors might have engaged with them. Stand in the full moonlight in your bare feet. Find a tree in a park that you feel kinship with and visit them regularly. Toss some hyssop in steaming water and breathe deep, letting the scent scour out the grief from your lungs. Ask permission of the plant before picking a fruit or a flower and leave a gift in return, such as a kiss, your breath, or a strand of hair. Honor the light as it begins to dissipate as we shift into the fall, and then honor the darkness as it envelops us. Drink herbal tea slowly, intentionally, asking the herbs to speak to you, because they will. Read the Dandelion Manifesto I wrote a few years ago and ponder what it brings up for you. Right now, early September, there are still dandelion leaves in abundance, so go sit with the plant and have some dandelion ritual tea, engaging all of your senses. Pay attention to what happens within you when you do any and all of this. I'll add some resources in the transcript for you, both for these practices as well as ways to support indigenous resistance. Let us seek what has been lost so that our community may be whole again. Thanks as always for joining me from wherever you are in this good earth. Let us know how your actions go. We'd love to hear from you by commenting on our SoundCloud or Twitter or Facebook pages. And next week, John Bergen will be back with a resistance word for us for September 22nd. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. Give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to our podcast. 
Transcripts are available as well on our website, which include references, resources, and action links. Finally, a huge thanks as always to our sound editor this week, Maxwell Pearl. Blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Love and liberation, beloveds. Love and liberation. Until next time, I'm Reverend Ann Dunlap. Children.